I told him I was going to try to get married. And if he didn't like it, then I didn't have to ever ring anybody's phone or their doorbell. You know, I, they lived their life and I was living mine. You know, prophets also are often ostracized. They don't win, right? They're, they're the ones who don't, you know, sort of get the, um, the, the benefit of what they're foretelling. But they're just as crucial. I mean, who wants to live in a world when they're just totally unhappy? Uh-huh. Hmm. Might as well be dead. This week we're talking about Donna Burkett. We've been kind of teasing this story for a long time, and I think one of the goals of BC in Season 2 is we wanted to include these personal profiles. So our very first episode was with Bobby Rivers, a queer media pioneer. And this episode, Donna Burkett, really features an important story about marriage equality and I think speaks to the the title of the podcast about being seen. And we look at the sacrifices that Donna Burkett and her then partner, Mononia Evans, made as they were seeking marriage equality in the early 70s and how high profile this case became and then how quickly it was forgotten just years later. We should start in 1971, which was 11 years before those protections would be passed in 1982 for the LGBTQ plus community. Yes. And September 1971, as you mentioned, is a really interesting month because it starts with Chucky Betts on the front page of the newspaper. Right. The first time maybe people had ever seen a gay person. And within two weeks... Um, On September 22nd, there's a news story about women seeking a marriage license. And this is just about maybe, you know, two years after Stonewall. And the world is seemingly changing so fast. And I think that that is, you know, what must have been so exciting because you had Stonewall uprising. You had over 100 gay rights groups forming around the country. You had over 100 um, pride celebrations honoring the one-year anniversary of Stonewall. And then the next year, you have all of this happening. So there's just all this momentum and all this excitement and all this energy. And the sad part is that the story didn't end well, at least not in 1971. The story ended well in 2014, but it took a long time to get there. And the consequences that both Donna and Mononia suffered, as well as their attorney, were tremendous. They really took a stand, whether they knew they were activists or not. They certainly were paving a way, and they paid the price for it. And Donna Burkett was really no stranger to activism. In fact, she she marched with Father Grappi and Val Phillips in Milwaukee's open housing marches. In the interview that we're going to hear later, she talked about literally wearing out a pair of shoes that summer because of all the marching and, and um activism that she was a part of. And over the years, she granted a lot of interviews. In fact, she spoke with the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Libraries in 2007 um, to archive her story. And she's also spoken with national outlets as well. In fact, in the in the 70s, um, during all this media attention, they had a, like a six-page spread in Jet Magazine from Chicago, but certainly um, wants her story to be told and has archived this story. So we're just really thrilled to, to have access to this, this original audio from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Libraries that takes us back to 2007 and, and uh, shows just kind of where she was at, um, pretty far removed from this historic event. Okay, my name is Donna Millinishoel, last name Burkett. Today is Saturday, July 14th, 2007. And I am recording this at the City of Milwaukee Main Library downtown. And 
My partner, my interviewer is my friend. I'm the interviewer, and my name is Julia Kleppen, and I'm happy that she's calling me a friend. <laughs> I was born in Chicago, Illinois, Cook County Hospital. I don't think at that time there was any other. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my family moved here. We moved here to Milwaukee. I think I was like eight or nine when I got here. Uh, so that made it about 50, what, two, three, four, five, somewhere. My math is not that great. But you do the math. When I first came to Milwaukee, Milwaukee used to be a very clean city. I mean, it was so clean, there was no trash on the streets. You know, the streets were so safe. I know as kids, my sister and I have one sister, no brothers. It's just the two of us. Uh, we used to play outside in the alleys. We could take shortcuts through people's yards and play in the alley all night. It was no problem. We never thought anything bad could happen to us. I'm not may not be seeing things in order, but I went into I joined the army. I wanted to join when I was in uh, high school, but my mom wouldn't sign for me. So when I got old enough. So where she didn't have to sign for me, I went in. I thought I was going to, I joined the Army to see the world, but ah. they fooled me. <laughs> <laughs> I saw I saw um, Alabama <laughs> with George Wallace as the governor then, and that was enough for me. Oh, <laughs> it was real love. That's the first time in my life that I had really ran into racism real strong. I mean, out and out. I mean, I probably ran into it. I just reckon, didn't recognize yeah, it. Yeah. But I ran into blatant racism. You know, they had the signs, uh, colored, used entrance, and I never saw that before. I never saw it, and that just really got me. And, you know, and I had just finished marching you know, for open housing, you know, and uh, I had been marching, but I had never been confronted, really. I mean, I'm, I remember when we crossed the 16th Street Bridge, when we came across the bridge, that was the first thing I saw, and a group of people telling us to get off the side of town, and, you know, I remember that. I thought we was going to die right there, but I remember that. Uh, that was racism, too, but it still wasn't as deep as uh, seeing these signs, uh, no colored and colored entrance, that kind of stuff. I had never seen that stuff before in my life, I was just, and I was so militant then. You know, I couldn't get served. I just took everything on the counter and just knocked it off. I could have got lynched right there. I didn't even—I was too stupid to realize— that I was in danger. I was just so angry. I wore out a pair of tennis shoes that summer, marched for open housing. My family was down to earth. My grandfather started uh, the barbecue business here in Milwaukee. His name was Black King. He was uh, down on the Haymarket and he had the best barbecue in town. Wow. Everybody used to come to him. 
Then his restaurant burnt down. And then he opened up another one on 7th and Galena. And then finally he opened up the big one. My grandfather had the first sit-down restaurant for blacks in Milwaukee. It was beautiful. When the entertainers, the black entertainers used to come to Milwaukee to do the shows, they would always stop at my grandfather's restaurant. And if my sister and I was there, they'd take us back. And we'd go backstage to the shows. They would take us back to meet the, meet the performers. Donna says she always knew that she was a lesbian since she was little. It wasn't a question. It was clear-cut in her mind. And she didn't understand why people had so many hang-ups about it. But that didn't stop her from moving forward with her relationship with her soon-to-be fiancé she met earlier that year. And she told her family of their plans. I told them I was going to try to get married. And if you didn't like it, then I didn't have to ever ring anybody's phone or their doorbell. You know, I... They lived their life, and I was living mine. My mother was fine with it. My grandmother ended up coming around, and so did my aunts, because they saw they weren't going to change me. I'm still kind of headstrong about whatever I do. So that was the end of them getting in my way. <laughs> you know, and I feel like once you state your case, People just have to accept you or not, you know. So mm-hmm. if they do, fine. And if they don't, you know, you still have your life to live. So, yeah, you know, whatever sounds... road you choose to go down in life, or even if you don't choose it, but whatever road you go down, it's your decision to stay on that road. So, mm-hmm. you know, just know that it's your decision. I believe because I was militant and I was gay and I did not believe that the government had any business telling me who I could marry or who I could not marry. So let's step through the timeline of this whole event um, because it started in uh, 1971 but continued actually for a bit after that and got a ton of media attention. I mean, this was covered all, all over the place. We went down to City Hall take out a marriage license. That was the first step. I remember that. We fill out the little application thing, and then uh, they told us uh, they was at a desk that we couldn't marry because we were both females. They um, apply for this marriage license, and kind of oddly, like the media was there, like ready to intercept them after they were kind of ushered out the side door and rejected at the at the desk. Then they told us to leave out this door, just a side door. They, when we got out in the hallway of the courthouse, you know, then all these photographers and all the papers and stuff was there, you know, kind of like, what is going on here? You know, I don't mm-hmm. know how they found out we was coming. And we don't really know how that happened. Like, and yeah. they don't even know, but they were bombarded by this, like, media pool when they, when they were rejected. Yeah, the media latched onto this story almost immediately. And there were all these reporters there waiting. And... To date, Donna has no idea how those reporters knew to be there or that they would be there or what they were doing there because their names had never been released in advance. They found out where we lived. And at first, we wouldn't, uh, we only would let them photograph us from the back or silhouette. Mm-hmm. We did that for uh, maybe about a few weeks. And then we finally let them. Uh, take a full picture of us and our faces, you know. Uh-huh. It wasn't that we were ashamed or anything. It was just we figured we'd keep them in suspense for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Who are these people? 
Donna's family, in her words, they flew with it, with her being a lesbian, and they slowly came around. But she said on Manania's side, it was a different story. Her father was a minister, and he was some kind of big wheel in government. I don't even know his first name. And he told me that he'd rather his daughter marry a drug dealer, a dope head, a drunk, a wife beater, anybody but another woman. That's what he told me. And it was pretty hard uh, as far as her family was concerned because they were so, uh, you know, uh, upper echelon that their daughter turned out like this. It, to them, it was all bad. With my family, my mom told me, whatever you be, be the best. Try to be the best. Oh, he treated her really bad. He uh, threatened to kill her. And he had, uh, I said he kidnapped. To me, that's what it was. He kidnapped her, took her to his house and locked her in the room. And she was locked up for about a week. I didn't know where she was. You know, I really didn't know where she was, but... Uh, I didn't find out till after. Eventually, her her mother had pity on her. That's what she said, and unlocked the door and let her out. You know, mm. but he was just determined to that. Uh, he said he'd kill her first. That's kind of horrible to think. You know that somebody would you know rather see they. I to me, as long as your child is happy. You know, but then the ultimate, the last straw is their happiness. I mean, who wants to live in a world when they're just totally unhappy? Might as well be dead. And the couple's path to happiness had only one direction to go. Forward. The wedding was on. Now, did you and Manonia have a commitment ceremony of some yes, sort? Yes, we did. It was at, uh, let me think, I think it was at Jefferson Hall. What uh, that used that was on Fond du Lac and like off a of center. I mean, somewhere around the center street area in Fond du Lac, and I think that was uh, that was on Christmas Day. December twenty fifth, Christmas Day that same year, they're having their wedding, and it's a two hundred fifty person wedding and a big event, and of course without that official recognition. Yeah, so no church would host them, no bridal gowns would be sold to them. They faced doors slammed in their faces everywhere they turned. Even catering businesses refused to work with them. So they undaunted just proceeded um, with renting out Jefferson Hall, which was on North Fond du Lac Avenue. And Castaways, which was a very popular gay bar for most of the um, the late 60s, early 70s, and incorporated uh, the services of a gay Orthodox reverend, Joseph Feldhausen, who had been working at St. Nicholas Parish, which was really Milwaukee's first, uh, I would say, gay-inclusive faith center in the early 70s, and he moderated the ceremony for them, which was a big deal because now they had a place and now they had, you know, a minister of sorts, and now they had a ceremony, and then they just kept planning from there. Um, the media was not allowed to come to the wedding, although every one of the news stations in Milwaukee wanted to be there, and reporters tried to sneak into the wedding. Oh, really? Wow. And we do know some people who actually went to this wedding as teenagers and talked about like what they saw there and how interesting it was to be, you know, at a gay wedding in 1971 in Milwaukee, in the inner city, 
and just like how natural it felt and how they didn't understand why the outside world was treating it so unnaturally. So I, I think that, you know, the interesting thing here is that, you know, as Donna said, you can't stop love. These people were going to go ahead and get married. They were going to be happy. They were going to be together. And the law was not going to change that. But at the same time that they're doing this, their lawyer is filing a federal lawsuit on their behalf, stating that they were denied equal protection and due process of the law, which are constitutional rights. If I had known that it was going to be such a big deal, 20 or 30, 40 years later, maybe I would have made some mental notes or <laughs> kept some articles, but it really wasn't big. I didn't know, you uh -huh. know, the magnitude of what was uh, really happening. You know, I didn't know that we would still be fighting for these same rights 50 years later, you know? Yeah, right. And it seemed like these are rights that we got through the Constitution. I mean, you know, these are these rights were given us, you know. <laughs> That's what I felt, and I still feel that way, you know. So this becomes a, a big legal battle and um, goes to the state, I mean, to the state capitol. This was not decided in, in uh, Milwaukee court. So let's talk through kind of that legal timeline. What, what happened next? So the lawsuit actually used the same argument that won marriage equality for Wisconsin in 2014. Um, that by denying the right to marry and subsequently marital benefits, these individuals were being denied constitutional rights. And county attorneys countered that there was no federal issue. There was no constitutional issue. And their argument was that these women only have the right to exercise their lifestyle, but no one else needs to accommodate them in their exercise. Mm. So basically saying, you know, they can live this life, but these this is what you get for living this life. You're you're sacrificing the rights that perhaps normal people would have. And that was the the implication at the time is that something was abnormal about their union and therefore it was illegal and and like they didn't satisfy the minimum requirements yeah, for a marriage almost. Exactly. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. marriage in their minds was a man and a woman and because they were not a man and a woman, like simply put, they, you know, couldn't be married. But nowhere in the law did it say that in Wisconsin at the time. Um, two weeks after their application was refused, the Minnesota Supreme Court denied two gay men who were seeking a marriage license. And nothing in their state law prohibited same-sex marriage either, but the ruling defined it as a male-female exclusive relationship. So this didn't look great for Mononia and Donna, who, you know, were very excited, had filed this case, felt like they were, you know, really going to change the world. And at the same time, legal champions around the country were thinking the same thing. I mean, there were a lot of articles written at that time that said, you know, can this be same-sex marriage? Can this really be happening? Like, is this really here already? And, you know, this is 10 years after the Black Knight. This is two years after Stonewall. The world was changing really, really fast, and it almost seemed like this was possible. What I think is really interesting is, you know, this quote from Gay People's Union. So Gay People's Union was the organization of the time and over the 1970s really transformed what we knew of as gay life in Wisconsin and really were doing some groundbreaking things that were milestones for not just Wisconsin but the entire country. Donna did not see herself as a gay rights activist. She didn't see herself as doing anything heroic at all. She was just trying to do what was right for herself and her loved one. 
And this is a common thread amongst many people of this generation is I was at a moment in time where I had to make a decision and I made the decision that was right for me and my loved ones. And if you want to call that heroic, you know, 50 years later, great. But at the time I wasn't a hero. I was the villain of the story. While Donna didn't see herself as heroic, many others did. In fact, looking back now, more than 50 years later, her case was, in a way, prophetic. After the break, we'll hear from the Wisconsin ACLU's legal director who reflects on the case and the couple's legal argument, how it compares to the case that would eventually win marriage equality in 2015, next on Be Seen. Hey, Wisconsin foodies. This is Tariq Moody of Radio Milwaukee. Join Milwaukee Magazine's food writer, Ann Christensen, and myself every Friday morning at 8 a.m. for This Bites, Milwaukee's longest-running culinary podcast. We talk about everything from new restaurants, pop-ups, cookbooks, events, and even an occasional interview with a local chef. Head over to RadioMilwaukee.org slash This Bites or listen anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Larry Dupuy. I'm the legal director at the ACLU of Wisconsin. The constitutional law is really meant to protect minorities and it's meant to protect those who are vulnerable in society. Can you speak to that a little bit about the purpose of constitutional law? Yeah, I mean, one view of the Constitution and certainly of, you know, for example, the 14th Amendment, um, but also to some extent, you know, the the First Amendment. But the 14th Amendment itself um, has, you know, contains what's known as the Equal Protection Clause. And that is explicit, was explicitly designed, it came in the wake of the Civil War, and it was specifically designed to protect a minority group. And there are cases going back to the early 20th century that explicitly say things like, you know, the whole point of um, the, the Bill of Rights and especially the 14th Amendment is to protect dis, quote unquote discrete and insular minorities from majoritarian overreach. Um, the Bill of Rights and and the equal protection component of the Fourteenth Amendment are certainly things that are designed to protect against the government, just sort of the majority through the, through the government running roughshod over uh, minority groups. And the 14th Amendment um, obviously was something that, that Donna was was referencing in her case. And was that also the basis for um, the Supreme Court granting that, that right? Was that, was that legal case based on the 14th Amendment? Yes, the 14th Amendment is, it, it contains both the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause. And that's where Kennedy was a little bit cagey about exactly where he was, what, what, uh, which of those clauses or, and really he sort of said both clauses protect um, the right uh, to marriage for gay and lesbian people, both. And, and for him, the due process clause protected liberty. And, you know, the idea to some extent is that the government shouldn't be suppressing somebody's right to, you know, in this case, to marry the person of their choice, unless there's some really profoundly countervailing government interest and in this case, the court said there isn't one. And the Equal Protection Clause comes at it from a slightly different angle. It's a, it's a question of whether people are treated equally under the law. And here the argument is, of course, excluding gay and lesbian couples who are in every meaningful way 
in the same situation vis-a-vis loving one another as, as heterosexuals, that they should not, there's no good reason, no sufficient reason to justify depriving that group of people from the benefits of marriage. So there, Kennedy sort of used both of those in his majority opinion, and the 14th Amendment contains both of those clauses. I mean, speaking of the Supreme Court, I mean, what would have happened if Donna's case had escalated beyond the federal case, if it would have indeed gone to the Supreme Court? Do you have any idea what, what the legal landscape might have held in 1971? Well, in 1971, uh, that was, I believe, when the case was brought in the state court in Minnesota. And the, that case got to the Minnesota Supreme Court, and the Minnesota Supreme Court rejected the claim for marriage equality. And then that plaintiff did appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court and asked the U.S. Supreme Court to take up the case. The court just declined to do so, saying there was no no substantial federal question at issue. So they didn't really have a full ruling. That case, I, I think, is a pretty strong indication that at the time, in the 1970s, um, the the court would have been very unlikely to, to rule in Donna's favor at that time. But that, obviously, it takes somebody to start, right? I mean, that's sort of the lesson of uh, a lot of these cases is, you know, and there was Dred Scott, and then there was, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson. Those cases were only overruled because somebody took them on. And so that, you know, and, and the first people to take them on didn't succeed, right? And you, you, there is a question of sort of when is the judiciary and more broadly, I mean, the judiciary is embedded in our culture and in our, our society and in our, our in other governmental institutions. So you're always sort of asking the question, is now the right time? Um, and I'm not sure, you know, you can ever predict that entirely, but somebody has to try and, and try first. And Donna was in the vanguard. In this particular case with Donna Burkett, that case failed. And the challenge was, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a hard fought battle and a challenge for them, but it undoubtedly made an impact. So I'm, I'm curious, just from your perspective, 50 plus years later, what impact did this case have on marriage equality in Wisconsin? I would say that her case was prophetic. If you think about what prophets are, they are people who foretell the future in some sense. She was ahead of her time, but the kinds of arguments she was making are the arguments that ultimately prevailed. And in some sense, it's not surprising because the basic ideas of equality and liberty are in all of the founding documents of our country. And it was just a question of when people would realize that that means gay and lesbian couples too. We, we look at, you know, the, the impact that they made, the conversation that was started, and it, and it led eventually to progress. And in fact, in 2014, um, Donna herself was awarded and recognized with an award from the Milwaukee LGBT Community Center. 
And in presenting this award, the president of the LGBT Center said, we wanted to recognize her and the everyday heroes, the folks who just make decisions in their daily lives to be out and how that has this ripple effect. It's really probably the most critical act someone can do in the movement towards equal rights. To which Donna replied, I don't think I paved the way. I just did what I thought I should be doing. Mm. I just did what I thought I should be doing, you know, and I think that that is so emblematic of what so many in the LGBTQ plus community are trying to do. And that's just live their lives, you know, and do what they want to do and and find the partner they want to be with and not be harassed by the government. Right. I mean, that's kind of the basic things of, of life that make you happy. And in this case, arrived too late for Donna, but the impact is undeniable. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of Be Seen Season 2. We've got a few more to go on Be Seen Season 2 coming up next week. Talking about the old-timers party, Michael. We've been teasing this story from the very beginning, the episode preview. This is a lot of fun, a really long-running Milwaukee tradition that was sadly ended by the pandemic. But for years and years, decades even, was really the premier like annual event that gathered the women's community together from lesbian bars and, and lesbian bars that had been closed over the years and came together for one special day to celebrate and to reminisce. Well, that's all for this episode of Be Seen Season 2. If you aren't subscribed to the feed, make sure you get subscribed. We've got a few more episodes coming yet, as I mentioned, plus a bonus episode coming later this year in October. So get on the feed if you're if you're not subscribed and check out Be Seen Season 1 on any of your streaming platforms. Just search for Be Seen. This is Kiri Salinas, audio production manager at Radio Milwaukee, giving a special thanks to Nate Emig, executive producer and co-host of Be Seen, along with Michael Takash, the curator at Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project, Brett Krasgowski, our web editor, segment producer, Salam Patayer. Thank you to the marketing team led by Sarah Lahr, Dan Reiner, our digital marketing manager, Aaron Bagata, the creative marketing manager. Thank you to Radio Milwaukee's community engagement team, DJ Brewer and Mallory Wallace. Our program directors, Dori Zori with 88.9 and Tariq Moody with Hyphen. And last but not least, thank you to Maxie Jackson, the executive director at Radio Milwaukee.